You're in the water loop. Hey everyone, this is Travis with Waterloop. I know a lot of people want to use water efficient fixtures, but they're afraid they won't work as well. Let me tell you about High Sierra Showerheads, which was named Best Showerhead by Popular Science. I just installed one at my house and I was genuinely surprised at the power and coverage of the water. High Sierra Showerheads earn the EPA WaterSense label for water efficiency. They use at least 40% less water than the conventional low flow showerheads. High Sierra showerheads are constructed out of metal, so there's no plastic involved, they're very durable, and they're naturally antibacterial. One of my favorite things, these showerheads are made in the USA by a small business located in the Sierra Nevada foothills. Get 20% off with promo code WATERLOOP at HighSierraShowerheads.com. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Very excited for my first repeat guest, Chad Nelson, CEO of Surfrider Foundation. Chad, how's it going? Excellent. Thanks for uh, having me back. It's an honor. Yeah, yeah. Like I mentioned on that first episode, you know, you're like my favorite organization, really, as a as a surfer and as just a, a beach and ocean lover. Um, how could I have any other NGO ahead of you guys in my <laughs> life? So, um, well, I appreciate that. <laughs> For sure. Um, we're talking during this kind of crazy time here with coronavirus and, uh, you know, disruptions across our society in, in many different ways. Um, one of the things has been beach access and ocean access and kind of people having to, to stay home. Um, I'm just curious, you know, how's it been for you in a lot of different ways here um, as, as the head of Surfrider, you know, as a California resident? Uh, as a surfer. Sure. Well, you know, I think like everybody in the world, we were taken by surprise in, you know, early March, mid-March when uh, we realized that the uh, COVID threat was real and spreading quickly. And, um, you know, it was really interesting because what what we witnessed was, um, you know, uh, offices were closed down, work was closed in restaurants, everything. And um, so, and, and the front end of this, people had time and uh, so they they were like actually rushed to the beach, and uh, the beaches were overcrowded. And so at least here in California, and I think in many other places, including around the world, they actually closed the beaches. Right? It was like okay, we got to. And uh, the, you know the the gyms were closing, everything was closing, and um, and so it was interesting that that it just showed how much people love the beach like given the like free time and the lack of other options, people rushed to the beach. And so you know we faced nationwide beach closures which short of a massive sewage spill or an oil spill is something you know we've never seen and you know we're an organization that champions beach access and ocean recreation and people getting out there to surf but at the same time we realize that this is a serious public health threat so we actually came out with in support of staying home encouraged people to stay home we had a stay home shred later sort of like message we were putting out to folks um but you know it was hard uh people needed to get outside there was discussion about essential activities and um you know getting outside and exercise was one of those yeah and and so you know that was that was phase one of this whole thing 
Yeah. And yeah, totally. That's people are like, well, I want to be outside. Sunshine's good. Fresh air's good. Exercise is good. Right. So like, I want to go to the beach, but then you get too many people there. That's where I guess the issues are. I think we, uh, we were only from when the time things started closing as a, you know, economically, I think the beach was open for like maybe a week, maybe two, not even probably here. So definitely got a couple trips in myself and then they shut that down. Um, and I totally understand the big picture, but it's tough. Like having the being like, can't go to the ocean unless you have a boat and you can go off someplace and like get out there that way. But it's tough, tough being, uh, you know, cut off from the ocean and, and looking at a long time before you can surf again, you know? Absolutely. You know, we know getting outside and getting exercise is good for our mental, physical health. Uh, and for a lot of people, the coast and the ocean is their primary source of recreation. So, you know, that was tough on people, you know, people walking in the streets, Parks, a lot of parks were closed too, so there weren't a lot of options. Um, and that was pretty challenging. And, you know, what we, one of the things we learned was, you know, part of the problem was, you know, it's true for I think all of society, we didn't have a strategy hmm. you know, on how, how to provide access in a way that was going to balance really important health and safety concerns with recreation. And that was kind of the next phase of this, you know, um, about three weeks ago or so, we started talking about. Uh, you know, the curve had sort of been flattened, arguably. And, um, and so there was beginnings to just, there was a lot of discussion about opening up areas. And we got very involved in trying to help uh, set some principles and guidelines to reopen beaches. So, um, yeah, I saw, I, I saw you guys. Yeah, I saw you guys put that together. Um, I, you know, I, like I follow all your stuff on social media. I saw that come out. So, uh, yeah, talk about that. You, you kind of put together a group of experts, um, you know, who kind of what different areas of expertise and then and what did they come up with? What, what were these principles and guidelines? Yeah, so we, you know, we realized, hey, we have a lot of expertise on beach going. There was actually we work with some of the guys at Surfline. Um, you know, in Australia and Hawaii had were early adopters in this idea of recreation only, uh, sort of a keep it moving policy. And so that's a way of avoiding crowds um, and, uh, you know, provides opportunities for exercise. So we assembled a group of experts that were in public health, because that's obviously paramount, um, coastal law and policy, because beach access issues obviously relate to that, um, coastal management some on the ground experts uh, that represent cities, California and, um, and Virginia. And, you know, we were like, okay, you know, the management agencies are struggling. We we've had, we've seen what's worked. Let's make sure that this, we consult with scientists and experts. And uh, so we put out a set of principles and guidelines, you know, the, the principal piece of it was really important, which is, Hey, these are, and this is, was an interesting conflict. These are public resources, beaches in the ocean that are available to all. So we need to remember that. But that's conflicting with this idea that if anyone can come, it's overcrowded and therefore a public health threat. So we're going to limit access to places that shouldn't have access limited because yeah. of a health issue. And uh, you know, so we want to acknowledge that tension and say, in this case, public health is paramount. But let's not lose sight of the fact that these are places that are, um, you know, to the public. And the other part of that is, you know, I live in Laguna Beach. Uh, I'm a mile from the ocean. I can walk to the beach. Uh, that's a real privilege. 
And uh, so if we have to stay local, it means I can get to the beach. Hmm. But not hmm. everybody's got that opportunity. So there's a huge equity issue with beach access. There always has been, and this has made it worse. So, you know, the inland communities from where I live aren't invited to the beach because it's stay local. Hmm. So we really wanted to make sure this didn't turn into a, a localism issue. Uh, interesting. I, I did like that, the, the principles piece. You were kind of like laying out these big overarching philosophies to like, hey, here's the things to consider with beach access as you're trying to figure out the specific workings of how it's going to go. That was that was a great start. And yeah, and then we get into the nitty gritty of like, <laughs> hey, here, okay, you know, uh, it came down to, I think, you know, uh, limiting parking. Hmm. So that has a twofold impact. One is it discourages people from out of town to come into town because we weren't supposed to be traveling. Uh, and two, it just limits the overall capacity of people that can visit the beach. So it reduces crowds. This keep it moving policy, I think, was really good. Turns out really hard to enforce. <laughs> I can tell you about. But, um, you know, so the idea there was walking, running, swimming, paddling, surfing, these are all activities that you can do with physical distancing and by yourself. Uh, and why not allow people to get out there and get that exercise uh, as long as they're following those rules? It also, you know, we in we, my kids who are lifeguards, we, I can tell you about that where, um, you know, they were hearing, but I, I can't keep walking the whole time. I'm going to get tired. And they're like, that's right. Then you should leave so somebody else can come. You know, we need that turnover. You can't surf. It's hard to surf for eight hours, but if you surf for two, you leave the next two for somebody else and the next two for somebody else. So it actually helps more people enjoy the beach while having space. Yeah, so, yeah. It makes sense. Kind of like turn over at a restaurant or something. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. You've sat at that table long enough. Time to move along. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so that was one big one of your big uh, guidelines was like, hey, let's, let's kind of allow access, but limit it in a way with the capacity kind of. Exactly. Keep keep people moving and, and recreating um, was another sort of huge pillar of that. Um, and we needed enforcement. Yeah, that's that's key. So this this it sounds so, you know so yeah the you enforcement know, piece. How'd you do? How would you call for there? You know, you need to have uh, education signage, which you see all over, explaining the rules, encouraging people to actually read them and follow them. And then you need people down on the beach keeping people moving, um, you know, because people either didn't understand the rules or didn't want to follow the rules. And um, that's where my kids come in. They're both lifeguards in Luna Beach here. And so they were down on the beaches early because they were out of school, uh, you know, trying to uh, enforce this keep it moving recreation only policy. We which we're still operating under today. Yeah, I definitely I saw on Twitter when you put up something one morning about your your sons who are lifeguards so. and just them being out. What was what's it like as a father for you having your sons, you know, be out there kind of lifeguards while during this time and and yeah, what's that what's that been like? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, because I mean, we're also the other thing that's happening, I think there's some good science that's come out in the last month about the fact that, you know, um, it, it's, we're learning about how this disease is passed along to different people, you know, so surfaces were a big concern and, uh, and, and, you know, now and crowds still are, but we're learning that being outside is actually one of the better places to be, but, you know, they're out on the front lines, they're wearing the N95 masks, you know, trying to get people to, uh, follow these rules, which, you know, was challenging because you know 
one of the other things that's so crazy is that I guess like climate change and other things, um, it got so politicized, you know, so there were people, of course, saying, you know, these rules are ridiculous. I don't want to follow them. And you hear these, you know, 18 year old kids who are lifeguards having to enforce them with people who don't believe that COVID is real and that this is all a conspiracy theory. And so challenging stuff. Yeah. It's, uh, it's unbelievable the, the, uh, how things have gone off the rails in that, in that regard, you know? Um, well, it sounds a lot similar to what's going on here in North Carolina. Uh, you know, the beaches were just closed for a long time. Uh, and then they started allowing that you can come and recreate no towel, no chairs, walk, surf, keep moving. Uh, but parking was extremely limited. Um, so, you know, that really kept people out. We still don't have parking opened up all the way, but they have let us, uh, you can now sit and, and, you know, kind of do your regular beach activities. So spread out. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. No big groups, but I mean, I was out there, um, doing a walk with the family and I had the beach patrol coming along and, and if people were sitting down, they were having to tell them, you know, get up and move along and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, well, hopefully, um, I know there's been confusion there in California too. Like they opened up some beaches and they got mobbed with people and then, and then, so they had to backtrack on that. And it's just been a, a real tough process. Uh, it has been, I mean, and you know, I think, um, it's in some ways a metaphor for this whole thing, right? You need a, you need a strategy and you know, everyone's doing this for the first time cause it's all unprecedented. Um, and the science is evolving and we're learning and then you need public compliance to that strategy. And, uh, you know, this is true for restaurants and true for, uh, for all these things. And, um, but yeah, and you know, it's hard because, when things are changing dynamically, getting that information out to the public in a way that makes sense is really challenging. And I get it. I, yeah. uh, there's a patchwork of rules that are changing all the time. Like, you know, it's even if you're someone like you or me, who's super tuned into what's happening at the beach, you know, my hometown, people are like, are they open? Are they closed? What can I do? What can I not do? And so if you're not a avid beach goer, it would be even more challenging. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I know before we move to a different topic, I know that like when they, when I finally could get back to the beach and I got like my first surf session in probably close to two months. Yeah. Oh, oh man, it was amazing. I was so, <laughs> I was just like grinning. It was, it was awesome. It was like life came back. So yeah. I mean, you know, the absence makes the heart grow fonder. Yeah, totally. I think a lot of people who really, you know, are like, wow, I, I didn't realize much uh, I was going to miss this and how much I actually appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, a couple other topics. Um, I wanted yes. to ask about, uh, you, you know, the uh, you guys put out a report recently and there's some interesting pieces sure. in there. Um, I wanted to find out a little more about your, your Blue Water Task Force and sure. how you view the role of citizen science. You know, different organizations try to util utilize citizen science and I'm just kind of curious how you guys use it, uh, why you feel it's important. Well, you know, I, it, I think it's important on so many, so many levels. Um, so the Blue Water Task Force is our volunteer uh, recreational water quality monitoring program. Um, and we have, you know, these labs all across the country, uh, doing testing and they kind of vary a little bit depending on their location. Some are weekly, some are seasonal. Um, but the, the goal is to, you know, 
sample recreational water for, you know, um, fecal indicator bacteria, human waste, kind of the, the pathogens that are most likely to, to get us sick and are an indicator for urban runoff and other things. And, um, and so, you know, we're trying to see if it's healthy to, uh, safe to surf, swim or play in the ocean. Um, and you know, that program serves in a lot of functions. In some cases we, we test places that aren't tested by the agencies either by location or time a lot of the official county health department uh testing is done seasonally but surfers are surfing all year round so we want to make sure we're keeping track and in a lot of cases the wet season you know is is dirtier because of rainfall than the dry season so it's even more important particularly on the west coast where we tend to have uh dry summers you guys can have wet summers but uh but uh so part of it is trying to know if it's safe for surf to swim. So it's just a good old fashioned monitoring program. Um, oftentimes we find problems we, where we see chronically uh, high levels of bacterial pollution. And so then we want to zoom in and try to solve those problems. Um, you know, so it can become like source detection or, or uh, a means of raising awareness about an issue that we can get other, you know, the responsible agencies to, to tackle um, so is that what you do with the, is that what you do with the data then is you're looking for problems or do you, you also release it as you get the results? Is it published anywhere? How does that work? Yeah. So it's great. Actually, it's real time data on a, on a website that we publish. So, you know, the way it works is we collect a sample, we use sort of an IDEX process. It's a standard EPA approved methodology. Uh, it uses uh, enterococcus, which is like a fecal indicator bacteria, uh, we have to incubate it in an incubator for uh, 18 hours or 24 hours, and we get the results the next day. And then we post those on our website. Um, so you can zoom in, you know, if you go to our website, you can go to Blue Water Task Force. You can zoom into your location, see the dots on the map where we're testing, click on those dots and see the most recent and historical data for all the, all the locations. Um, so it's up real time and, you know, so we're, we're using that to educate people real time. We're using that in, to see if we find trends and, and see if there's problems. Um, we do a lot of it through high school programs too. So there's a huge educational program. Um, That's you know, awesome. it's, yeah, it's, it's great. So they do it through the high school, sometimes like the biology or chemistry program. And, you know, there's a lot of great learnings going on. Cause you know, as soon as you start t- sampling the water, you learn a lot about microbiology, you learn about chemistry, uh, and you start asking questions. Uh, hey, why is that place clean? Why is it dirty? Uh, and so there's a lot of good education. And, and ultimately, you know, it gives people agency. They, uh, they're in it. They know it. They understand it. They become experts. And uh, that puts them in a great position to be an advocate for clean water. Yeah, very, very cool. Um Another another program that kind of jumped out when I was looking through your report, and I've heard about this one before, but uh, haven't I haven't talked to you about it, and that's uh, the ocean friendly gardens program. Kind of kind of getting people really to build rain gardens or or businesses, whatever, to build rain gardens on their property. Um, talk about that and why you know that's a a program that Surfrider started. Yeah, it's a great question. So you know. Um, solving a sort of watershed scale water pollution problem. Sometimes we can identify a specific hotspot that's causing the problem, a leaky pipe pipe in a public bathroom, which is something we found once or, or something like that. Um, 
but oftentimes this is sort of a, a collective watershed wide sort of death by a thousand cuts problem. And um, we can solve those through an incredibly complex permitting process uh, through the EPA, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and those, those are really sort of arcane challenging, really important, but you know, permitting processes that go for your regional water quality control boards or whoever it is. And, um, and so we do that, but it, it, from an activist standpoint, it's pretty, pretty dull and pretty frustrating and pretty complex. It's hard for, uh, you know, to get up in the morning and say, Hey, I want to make a difference on water quality and, uh, slug through 300 page reports with technical data and then go to the, go to hearings for a process that in five years will ultimately clean up the water. Uh, yeah, I, so, I, I worked okay. at, I worked at EPA for six or seven years, so I understand fully. <laughs> EES permits, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and so we and we do that work. It's really important. I'm not trying to downplay it. Sure. No standard, certainly helping, but so we're like, all right, that's great. But we have a bunch of activists that are doers. They went out and want to go out there and make a difference. Well, you know a lot of people have control over some dirt on the planet, whether it's your front yard or your uh, apartments, HOA, or your businesses landscaping. And so let's start there and tackle that. And I mean, what's amazing is we, you know, a lot of times those are actually sources of pollution mm. because whatever's being planted there requires herbicides and pesticides or it's a source of water runoff because it's being overwatered or it's a source of water waste because what's planted there is not appropriate to the climate. So we're like, let's start a program where we can actually, you know, we call it CPR conservation, permeability and retention. Ah. uh, So planning a climate appropriate plants or native plants conserves water. Permeability is about trying to like bust up that pavement and, uh, Make sure you have healthy soil so the water can soil can act like a sponge and suck it in. And, you know, retention is about little berms so we can capture some of that water so it can soak in. And, um, you know, there's green infrastructure and other things. This is sort of like the, the landscape. So we're like, hey, turn your garden into a solution for pollution. Mm-hmm. And you, you can reduce the amount of pesticides and herbicides you need, the amount of water. And uh, it turned out there was like a boom in gardening right at the beginning of COVID. Uh, yeah, you're right. Cause you're stuck at home. And, and so all of a sudden people are like, Oh, well, I'm going to, I'm going to start planting a garden where they were worried about food security. Uh, cause you can do it for your landscaping or you could do it for uh food garden, yeah. same principle apply. And so it's actually been a pretty successful program. People, you know, are excited about it. We have a guides books. You can either hire a landscaper and have them follow the principles or you can do it yourself. Do it. Yeah. And I think I saw, uh, a bunch of these uh, got built in Florida in like in like one area maybe I think um, yeah and uh, yeah Sebastian Inlet area maybe if I you know that Central Florida spot there um, and of course sure. Florida has been just crushed the past bunch of years with these algae blooms you know all that all the nutrients uh, yeah from ag in Florida which people don't really think about a lot um, and then just that they got the warm water temps and so they've just been having a tough time with uh, nutrient pollution that massive problem with nutrient pollution and it's yeah it's causing horrific you know red tides but these different types of harmful algal blooms um that are killing fish and and some of them are toxic and uh it's a mess um and again like uh you know so 
fertilizer is another example, right? You fertilize your uh, your grass or your your plants, and if you build an ocean friendly garden, you don't need fertilizers because uh, you have healthy soils and um, you're using climate adapted plants, and so it reduces that need of adding all those nutrients to the system. Um, so you know we're not doing it at a, it at a scale that's going to solve the problem in Southern Florida, but we are showing what's possible, you know, so I'm sure you've, you've probably talked about this, but you know, you can do municipal scale, uh, green infrastructure and start building bioswales and parking lots that absorb water. And, and those are really taking the ocean friendly gardens principles to scale, uh, you know, and that, that solves one big piece of the nutrification problem. You know, in Florida, they have the Everglades and some really huge complex, uh, water and nutrient management issues that are bigger than Surfrider, but we're just trying to do our part to help people understand, you know, what these systems are. And if they get interested, then we'll be like, well, hey, there's state legislation to uh, address these issues also. So these are all like our gateways into <laughs> the issue. Yeah, yeah. Every every bit helps, right? Like we have to do yeah. all, it's not just the big, huge Army Corps of Engineers Everglades projects, but it's like, Everybody can people can do things on their property, and then a hundred people do that, a thousand people do it. You know, it all adds up, of course. Yeah. Non point, right? It's not it's not one source; it's a million sources. So let's start chipping those little ones away. Exactly, exactly. Um, totally different topic. One that's always fascinated me is like the uh, the crazy people that surf in the Great Lakes. Um, <laughs> you know, mostly because it seems like a lot of their waves are in the winter when the water's so cold and you see those like iconic photos of the guys with like the beards and the icicles and stuff. Um, I guess surfing creates that passion, but uh, what's up, what's up with those guys? And and uh, they, they, I saw them in their report. People up there get some credit for some good activism and, and everything up that way too. Yeah, uh, we have a great story which I can tell you about U.S. Steel. Um, so the yeah, I mean there are these like hardy hardy surfers that are you know we have five chapters in the Great Lakes, uh, and um, you know these are water lovers because you don't have to be a surfer to be a surf rider member, but some of them are. And, uh, and you know, they, I don't, I should know this, but I think, you know, the polar vortex storms, for example, mm. that come down out of Canada, I'm pretty sure those are the storms that generate enough wind to create the waves in Lake Michigan, for example. And, um, and so these guys are out there in these horrifically cold conditions catching waves and you know there's pictures like it, there are cases where the waves look pretty darn fun yeah uh and uh you know and they are i, I have a mad respect for them because they are out there battling uh these elements and it's you know i've surfed up in like canada and uh oregon and washington and uh, you know in the northeast in the winter uh all of which is pretty cold but this is a whole whole nother level but you know um they are as passionate about that and that coastline as, as any of us uh, and, you know, working to, um, you know, working to really protect them. And they've got some still, you know, old school point source pollution problems. So the story I wanted to tell you yeah. is, you know, U.S. Steel um, has a plant in Indiana, actually, that is uh, dumping hexavalent chromium. Not a good one. Uh, Lake in Michigan. No, this is I, it's the Aaron Brockovich 
poison. I tell people, you know, it's that, that, and, uh, they are, I, you know, it's a process in producing steel. I guess it's one of the chemicals they're using. You know, they're dumping it and reporting it to the EPA. And this has been going on for years and years and years. And it was actually Chicago law school, uh, and our Surfrider chapter in Chicago that discovered that this was happening and the place they're dumping is a surf spot. So, you know, we've joined forces with the University of Chicago Law School and we've sued uh, U.S. Steel to upgrade their point source permit to uh, get this chemical out of there. So that's been an ongoing issue now for years about, you know, we're in discussions with them and the city of Chicago is involved uh, to try to, you know, create a more strict permits to reduce the amount of these uh horrible toxins they're dumping in into lake michigan so it's lake michigan surfers <laughs> shout yeah. out to those guys yeah, yeah totally that, i mean it's it's always crazy to me hearing these stories man about a, a, a toxic substance like that that in in this 21st century is still just getting just dumped out into a waterway it's like yeah. When is this going to come to a to a close? That's crazy, but awesome for those guys uh, fighting that fight there. Um, last thing I wanted to ac ask you about is kind of uh, you know federal policy, federal budget. It's a crazy year, right? With coronavirus, uh, with really the the civil unrest going on in the country right now, with an election coming up. So in many ways, it's a it's a very tough, unusual year to be going to the federal government and asking for certain policies and certain budgets. But what are you guys, what are you guys hoping for? What are kind of your top priorities when it comes to the, the federal side of things? Yeah, that's a great question. And you know, it is, I, I think it's a lot of that work has been overshadowed um, by, by all, understandably by all of the recent events. Um, you know, and we're still plugging away. Uh, we we did have a huge Clean Water Act victory that went all the way to the Supreme Court uh, about six weeks ago on um, on a case for that about injecting wastewater into the ground in Maui, which really hinged on the question of these does groundwater, the connectivity between the pollution source and the water body, matter. Uh, and, you know, given the makeup of the court, we were pretty concerned about the outcome of that. But we won 6-3, uh, you know, and they're trying to put some definitions. They call that the functional equivalent. So, you know, if the, if the waste or whatever, the pollution that's entering the ground, if it's flowing through the groundwater and that's the functional equivalent of a river and coming out into the water body, it, 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 needs, a, it needs a Clean Water Act permit, you know, an MPDES permit. So that was a huge victory for us and for for clean water and this is you know this was the supreme court making this decision in the middle of the the covid crisis and so that was some really good news um you know we've been working hard on uh it's we've been playing a lot of defense because this administration has not been friendly to environmental protections you know so we've been really trying to make sure that uh you know the the, the clean water rule uh you know which is been threatened that's something we're trying to protect so these nav these you know um these uh intermittent streams and areas are, are protected i mean it's been a debate that's been going on for decades so i that's when i was at epa uh i was in the office of water uh when we 
that it's waters the U.S. Right, but yeah. but that name, clean water rule, is what we went with because we felt that's what it was delivering and was more yeah. understandable to people. So. I've lived that one and I understand and that that is so critical, you know, we're talking about a third of, uh, well, streams and streams that provide drinking water were a third of Americans, you know, and millions of acres of wetlands. It's like elementary schoolers understand that water flows downhill, right? Like you got to protect the, the source to protect what's down. hundred percent. Um, you know, I try to make sure NOAA, the national ocean and atmosphere administration and the EPA are, are properly funded, uh, you know, so, um, and defending the clean water act. So, you know, we call it, we call it the stand up for clean water campaign. Um, and those are the pillars under it that we've been fighting for. So, you know, uh, the Trump administration typically is trying to slash the budgets of these agencies. We work with, with Congress to try to get that money back into the budgets. It's actually been, um, more bipartisan than you would expect. Uh, which is somewhat encouraging um, sending money back to your district in terms of funding these agencies in your home states is a good thing. And, and both sides seem to recognize that. Uh, so, so, you know, that that's been a focus. We have a, also a, a new bill, the break free from plastic pollution act, which is a, a big federal comprehensive sort of plastic pollution um, act that focuses on, you know, single-use plastics. Um, it focuses on trying to get the um, these redemption. You know, um, their states have these recycling redemptions. If you bring this bottle back, you get ten cents, and that's really spotty. Mm-hmm. In the states that have it, we see a huge uh, reduction in waste and increase in recycling. You know, orders of magnitude. So we want to nationalize those programs. Um, and then one of the things that's really interesting is uh, the as the world gets off of gasoline for cars, um, you've seen the price of oil and, um, and we're moving you know, electrifying cars or driving them less. No one's been driving a car. I don't think for the last two months, hardly. Um, the, so the oil and gas industry is trying to figure out what the next use of oil is for them. And, uh, it's plastics. So there's a huge move to build these cracker plants. They call them, sort of, you know, in the Midwest and in Texas, um, and uh, it's poorly regulated, and uh, they're just taking that cheap uh, natural gas and turning it into plastic. So we really want to see uh, a pause on that until we can figure out what we're doing. It needs to be regulated in terms of the production processes itself, and is this really, do we really want to make plastic even uh, even cheaper and more accessible than it already is? Wow, I was not aware of that uh, that happening. I'm going to have to read up on that a little bit. That's uh, not good. Not good. It also makes sense what you said about you're being on, you're on the defensive right now, right? With yeah. the with the Trump administration, it you know you're you're not looking to make gains here and there necessarily, but at least hold the line um, on a, on a lot yeah. of this stuff. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, Chad, um, it was awesome to catch up with you again. I appreciate Bye. it. Um, and uh, like I said before, hopefully I'll see you in the water at some point somewhere, you know? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I look forward to us being able to travel again. And oh. if I'm in your, in your neck of the woods, I will definitely, uh, definitely look you up. And you're always welcome to come out here and catch a wave. Awesome, man. Thanks a lot. Take care. All right. Yeah, thank you. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.
The Waterloop Podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish choice for conserving water, energy, and money while enjoying an invigorating shower. Use promo code WATERLOOP for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. You're in the Waterloop.